0: Welcome to the new podcast of the American Academy of Orofacial Pain. I'm Isabel Moreno-Hay, Clinic Director of the Orofacial Pain Center at the University of Kentucky. The American Academy of Orofacial Pain, also known as AAOP, is an organization of dentists and health providers dedicated to alleviating pain and suffering of patients through the promotion of excellence in education, research, and patient care in the field of orofacial pain and any other associated disorders. If you would like to learn more about the AAOP and its mission, please visit our website at www.aaop.org. Before we get started, I would like to thank Dr. Steven Scribani, chair of the Continuing Education Oversight Committee of the AOP, for his support and guidance on this new project of educational podcast in which we will be talking to renowned experts in the field of orofacial pain and temporomandibular disorders. In today's podcast, we're going to be discussing with Dr. Gary Hare the importance of the recognition of orofacial pain as a specialty in dentistry. For those who might not know Dr. Gary Hare, he's past president of the American Academy of Orofacial Pain. In the last ten years, he has also been the chair of the written examination committee of the American Board of Orofacial Pain, and he's currently the program director for the Center of Temporomandibular Disorders and Orofacial Pain at the University of Rutgers. He's not only a world-renowned expert, but also a great speaker, and he lectures all around the world. Thank you so much for joining us today in this new podcast of the American Academy of Orofacial Pain.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Thank you for taking your time. I would like to start by asking you, what is the importance of considering artificial pain as a specialty in dentistry?
1: Well, as in all specialties, it gains recognition among the allied professionals as well as among the patients. And in doing so, the recognition that comes with that uh, specialization or this title of specialty is primarily to uh, protect and serve the public. Now, I know that's what most people see on the side of police cars, but the fact is, is that's what really is the meaning. In order to protect and serve the public, some certification process or specialization or recognition of the field must be in place so that the public and the referring doctors or other healthcare providers can identify those individuals who have advanced training or specialty knowledge in the field of orofacial pain in order to feel comfortable knowing that when they refer the patient, they'll get at least a minimum competency of evidence-based diagnostic techniques and treatment. Uh, There's another reason as well. Because with specialty comes specialty training programs. And specialty training programs uh, are to provide specialty uh, or specialists in the field, but they're going to provide us with competent clinicians who eventually will become teachers and professors, and they will help to populate the universities who will go on to gain experience and then teach others who will then follow. So the specialty will also provide new faculty who also have that same competency, but the competency also comes with clinical faculty who have gained experience over time. Uh, and this is a, one more problem that would be solved with especially is improved access to care. Access to care has always been a problem when you have patients seeking treatment. And I don't know how many times the patient has told me, and I know patients tell others, I didn't know you existed. I didn't know there was such a clinician who do what you do, or why didn't someone tell me this in the past, or how come is uh, the common phrase that we hear. Uh, I've been all over, and nobody ever told me what you've told me. So the access to care means, number one, that there are people who have been recognized as having the expertise or the specialized training beyond that of dental school, of undergraduate training, which would bring them to a level of exceptional understanding or competency in or facial pain, both in the diagnosis and management, so that when a physician or even a neurologist, other type of healthcare provider sees a problem that is beyond the scope of general dentistry or even dental specialties, but yet doesn't seem to meet the standard of what physicians are taught, then there's that gray area in between where orofacial pain fits. So access to care with a specialty would be improved because the physician would then be able to say, well, there is this specialty of orofacial pain and you should see the orofacial pain specialist. And then there's one, let's say, uh, that would be one reason one, 2, 3, and 3A would be insurance company recognition and third-party reimbursement. Because you have another problem where you'd have a situation where there would not be so many denials of treatment because, well, you can't do that. We don't recognize this. The, the temporal mandibular joint is not part of the body. We've written that out of our policy, or that's an exclusion. So we don't cover that. And uh, there would be a lot more, In excluding what we do, this was a bona fide specialty. So there's a lot of reasons. Access to care, protection of the public, recognition of the provider who has the training to minimum levels of competency beyond that of dental school training. All of these things add up to, in fact, make the profession look better and serve the public.
0: So what would the field of facial pain encompass? What type of condition would a specialist in orofacial pain will manage it?
1: Well, if if you look at the data and the statistics, uh, the statistics of patients, what you're really asking is wh- who is an orofacial pain patient? What types of patients do we see? A typical or orof- patient is primarily musculoskeletal, and when we see uh, the Typical orofacial pain practice, the data that uh, it was, and this was a survey that was done, uh, I, uh, and I think the classification of orofacial pain patients was published in Triple O back around 2010, and I really don't think the data has changed too dramatic. Around 85% of patients who present to an orofacial pain practice have some form of a musculoskeletal problem, uh temporal mandibular dysfunction, uh myofascial pain, whether it's primary to the masticatory system or referred. And uh among that group, the majority are women. So it's pre- it's female predominance, but it's mostly musculoskeletal pain. Now uh the new uh classification Cis CTMD, uh as opposed to the RDC TMD identifies Orthrogynous versus myotemporal mandibular disorder and uh, I think that realistically we don't see them as isolated problems we see them both uh, occurring at the same time so you'll have joint and muscle pain occurring simultaneously but when we see them occurring simultaneously the majority of the problem is typically in the musculoskeletal group rather than the arthrogynous group it seems that the temporal mandibular joints are fairly adaptable and the muscles are the primary source of the pain, which is extracapsular pain in most cases. The second type of patient that we see falls into the various forms of neuropathic pain. Now, these patients are roughly about, uh, make up about 40 to 50% of the patients. These are patients who have primary neuropathies or neuralgias, for example, trigeminal neuralgia or glossopharyngeal neuralgia or various types of primary neuralgias which are either idiopathic or secondary to some disease and here's where orofacial pain specialty comes into play because I can, I can cite examples. Uh, we, many of us at least are familiar with trigeminal neuralgia Now, you know trigeminal neuralgia usually presents in a patient older than 50 years who comes with a severe, sharp, short paroxysmal pain, which is episodic. They may have some background pain, which could be classified as type 2 trigeminal neuralgia or have episodic pain with no background. But what about the patient who has continuous and progressive pain, which is paroxysmal, and the background pain becomes more intense, and the pain refers over a wider area? Now, this is something that is not typically associated with trigeminal neuralgia, and this is a kind of a problem that you see raises a red flag because it doesn't fit. Now, we've seen patients, and we've published a few of these, where patients present this way they were treated for dental pain. They were treated for trigeminal neuralgia. But unfortunately, no, uh, no imaging was done. And these are patients who, uh, in one case, uh, had a cerebellar tumor. And uh, the patient died four to five months after the diagnosis. We've had patients with uh, macroadenomas of the pituitary gland invading the cavernous sinus. And these are cases fortunately were left to go, too long diagnosis while they were getting dental treatment or getting new glasses or having endodontic therapy done or telling them that they needed to go for psychotherapy and so on, when in fact the patient was giving the history that was adequate enough to pursue an accurate diagnosis if you knew what you were listening for. And this is where the orofacial pain specialty comes into play, which is where can in fact be a life-saving specialty. So the neuropathic pain patients who have primary disorders, TN, differentiated from secondary or facial pain coming from intracranial lesions or other diseases is really an important factor in when we see our neuropathic pain patients. But then we have another group of neuropathic pain where these are the patients who present to us who have iatrogenic disorders based on let's just say the best intentions of things that they don't have and uh you see um, third molar extractions with lingual nerve injuries or inferior alveolar nerve injury where the patient comes in with um post traumatic vagal neuropathies or they'll come with a post um periodontal procedure where there may have been in a, a minor flap procedure and a osseous reduction and they come back two or three months later and they say why is my lip burning or why do I feel tingling on the uh, gum and the gingiva and so on and more commonly than uh, that is lately we've been seeing a fair amount who have um, post-implant neuropathies and while they're underreported we feel the uh, Literature these days supports that there is at least 7% of patients post-implant uh, in the mandible distal to the cuspid who come back with some form of sensory dysfunction. So again, while it may be recognized as a part of the implant sequela, if it's immediately after the implant, what about the comes a month later? and says, my my lip is starting to tingle now. Is it anything to do with the implant? And the association is not made because maybe it's too long, but could it be or could it not be? And what do you do the next day if the patient says, Doc, you know, my my lip's still numb. Is that normal? And what do you do? And if um, you are uh, going to tell that patient, oh, that's normal. Just wait a few weeks and it'll get better, and you don't take an image, you might want to Write down the number of your insurance company on the back of the envelope because that's your next move. Mm-hmm. There are things that you just need to know because if you don't know them, your patient does. Mm-hmm. So that's the second group of the patients that we see. And the third group most commonly associated with an orofacial pain practice is the neurovascular orofacial pain patient. And these are the folks who have various forms of migraine, or trigeminal autonomic cephalgias, or other forms of primary and secondary headache, and that's where the problem is, where you have to make differential diagnosis as well, and this is where minimum competency in orofacial pain really is important. How do you tell the difference between, let's say, migraine and a an aneurysm? Okay, and what's the difference between an episodic, unilateral, throbbing headache and a progressive unilateral throbbing headache and how do you make that generation? and do you know the red flags and do you know the red flags to differentiate between primary and secondary so the third group the neurovascular or facial pain patients are the ones that are while it's probably going to represent in the neighborhood of around 20 percent of the patients we those patients also present with some of the more ominous conditions. These are the patients who may have some form of vascular anomalies, uh, aneurysms. Uh, maybe you see something uh, that's about to pop in the head that uh, you should immediately look for CT scans and so on. The message here is, who do we see? We see musculoskeletal, neuropathic, and vascular headache patients who may in fact have various forms of innocuous problems that require a diagnosis for appropriate treatment but in a small group let's say one to two percent of patients we will see an ominous problem not appropriately addressed one of two things is going to happen inappropriate treatment or withholding of a necessary treatment while you're doing something else like for example in the case of the cerebellar pontine angle tumor he was having dental extractions and he was getting root canals while his tumor was growing. So the delay in the appropriate treatment over the course of one year while he was pursuing dental remedies cost him that period, that window of opportunity where he may have had life-saving treatment. So the diagnosis is important and the oral pain clinician is the individual who with appropriate training is the one who would probably make an appropriate diagnosis.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the example you are giving us is is really powerful. In fact, my next question for you, Dr. Herr, was, you know, how would our patients benefit from from having the development? But I I do believe you have given us a, a great explanation and great examples. However, elaborating a little bit more about the suffering of our patients, um, What happens with these patients currently? You share how, how, in your experience, patients have come to you without being able to find a specialist. How would uh, this lack of access to care influence a patient that suffers from chronic pain? Well, the,
1: the problem has been in the past and it still is today, although it's becoming less of a problem with time. Most patients would see over the course of a five, it's like a, a five by five by five rule in a sense. Five years, most patients, patients would have seen five practitioners and spent five figures. Uh, and, and it's unfortunate, but for example, uh, I, have, uh, I have the opportunity to uh, get lots of emails from patients around the country and around the world, and uh, doctor help me, I have this. And one one uh, particular email stands out, and I uh, can only do this from uh, recall, but the patient uh, was um, having a crown preparation done. It was a routine crown preparation, and following the crown preparation, she described pain, which was of a burning, aching quality around tooth number 14, I believe it was. So she went back. He, dentist who did the procedure, he recommended an endodontist and the endodontist did an endodontic procedure and the tooth continued to hurt and the pain got worse and then she was referred to as an ear, nose, throat because it was thought to be a sinus problem and the ENT said, no, it's not an ENT problem, but you should go back to the endodontist because maybe he perforated into the sinus. And the other ENT said, no, that didn't happen. And you should see a neurologist because this is a neuropathy. And the ENT said, no, you should go back to the first dentist. And the first dentist said, no, you should see the orofacial pain people over this university. And they said, no, you have to go back to the neurologist. And before, three and a half months went by this patient had seen 14 different clinicians in five specialties and she had spent I don't know how many uh, thousands of dollars and had how many tests done and what was interesting and I forget the uh, antibiotic she was on but the only thing that got her better was an antibiotic but the antibiotic that got her better had anti inflammatory properties Hmm. so Every time they gave her the antibiotic, she improved. So she was convinced she had an infection. But the problem was it was because of the anti-inflammatory rather than the antibiotic properties of the medication. And eventually she wound up, uh, I believe she was eventually diagnosed with a post-traumatic neuropathy and she was put on a tricyclic. But this woman went months and years until she finally got the diagnosis and why is that necessary why could not the first clinician say well you have an or pain problem here's the yellow pages pick one of these guys and mm-hmm. that's where you should go and i think one of the problems is uh right now i know the american dental association has not yet included or facial pain in the undergraduate curriculum and we need to see that where at least our undergraduates are graduating with some knowledge of uh, where is the temporal mandibular joint and what it does and uh, what is or facial pain and get some neurophysiology and physiology of pain and pharmacolo- pharmacology of pain, which is um, kind of random around the country when you do some surveys. So we need to at least increase our educational process at the undergraduate level and we need to at least now we have programs postgraduate programs around the country teaching our facial pain at a graduate level and it's all based on a standardized core curriculum in our facial pain which is which is encouraging we have code approval we have code accreditation so hopefully the the Students, and I'm going to call them products. Okay, students are products, but the product that we're turning out from each university is based on the same core curriculum, and hopefully, we're turning out similar products from any university that follows that curriculum. So, hopefully, these days, if now we have, we're, we're on the threshold of specialty, you go to an artificial pain specialist who's graduated from a two year program that's accredited, you will have the same type of diagnostic and therapeutic workup that you would have coming from a graduate from the West Coast, from the East Coast, from the middle of the country that you would have anywhere else. So hopefully this is where we're headed in the future.
0: So, you, in the example that, that you gave us, um, you mentioned how artificial pain seems to have been crossing different medical specialties, right? From the ENT, referred to neurologists, back to the dentist. Um, but what I would like to ask you is how important it is, though, to have a multidisciplinary approach in the management of these patients?
1: It's the, that's an interesting question because it's you know I, I do get to travel around the world a bit to lecture in different countries and uh, it's fascinating to see how even in the U S but in various countries how dentistry has a higher and equal position in many places around the world than it does in the U S and uh, as far as I don't want to use the word pecking order but I just I guess I just did, Uh, but um, for example, I'm at Rutgers University in uh, New Jersey, and we enjoy a very, very cordial and equal uh, relationship with the Neuroscience Institute of New Jersey, uh, which is part of the medical school where not only do we refer back and forth to each other on a fairly regular basis. But our residents share grand rounds together where they uh, discuss cases on a neurological case on one week and the following week, uh, a neurofacial pain patient will be presented or will have some demonstration of a technique that would apply to both and so on. And it's, it's interesting how it crosses over. I remember early in the days when we first began this program, there was a case where they had done surgery on a patient, for trigeminal neuralgia who obviously had cluster headache when we brought the attention to the surgeon about the symptoms that the patient had that well you know this guy has unilateral side locked headache which is episodic lasting one to three hours that's not trigeminal neuralgia and the autonomic features that go with it doesn't make sense did you try any pharmacotherapy and they looked at us like, well, wait a minute, what are you talking about? And then we presented to them the following month, and all of a sudden, the referrals began going in both T and surgery patients where the symptoms return, not neuralgia, but as a neuropathy. So we've got these developing protocols. We're working now as far as orofacial pain and sleep medicine where we have a working relationship with pulmonology. We're working even within dentistry the endodontic department and the endodontists in our neighborhood, we can't find the reason why this patient's tooth is hurting. We will not do the endo until you look at it. And this is where it goes into this interaction where not only specialties within dentistry, but medical specialties really need each other to help the patient because, again, as I said in the beginning, we see, as a, at a university clinic setting, too many cases which are iatrogenic, and we have patients, as I said earlier, and it was kind of a flip, uh, kind of a statement. Too many patients with excellent treatment for things they didn't have, hmm. and, and and you get these, you know, wonderful endodontic procedures or surgical interventions or. Actions, and the patient says, yeah, but if you did that, why is it still hurt? And right. Did you leave a piece of tooth in there? How many times have you uh, heard that? Or uh, did you get all the nerve out? Or is uh, something else going on? And why do I still have? And um, because obviously the source of pain was not the tooth. So you need to be able to go beyond the tooth. I mean, uh, I, I'm, uh, I'm a Weldon Bell Advocate Weldon Bell was my my role model, and uh, William Osler was Weldon Bell's model. And Osler would tell you if you listen to the patient long enough, they'll tell you the diagnosis. And if you, you, but you need to know what to what to listen for. And he would tell you what you see and what you hear and what you smell and what you touch. You, you you'll you'll get the diagnosis from the patient. You just need to sit back and absorb what that patient is looking like and saying and so on. And that's really what we have to do. Dentists are too quick to do stuff. Dentists are too many times um, doing things because they do things. And I think, and I'm just going to get a little bit on my soapbox process, is too much geared to techniques rather than to thinking. In, in the in the first year of dental school, we entered dental school as medical students doing dental procedures or doing dental doing dental courses and the second year we're dental students taking medical courses and the third year we're actually in the clinic touching patients or touching each other or doing an injection into an apple or an orange or sewing up a piece of rubber. But then by the middle of the third year we're doing procedures. And by the fourth year, by the fourth year here we are full fledged clinicians doing things to patients, knowing that if we don't do enough of them we won't graduate on time. So we forget about all, and we go ahead and we start doing dental things just to reach the light at the end of the tunnel. So we become full-fledged procedurists. Now, the problem with that is the patients lose their identity. I did a, a kind of, um, let's call it a very unscientific survey of seniors one year, and I asked a bunch of my seniors, tell me if you can remember the name of your first clinic patient. And about 60 or 70 percent of the students could remember my first clinic patient was so-and-so and and I did this procedure because I remember, you know, it was an exciting day for me and I know who it was. And then you, same student, you come back a couple of days later and say, hey, uh, who who are you seeing today? I'm seeing my crown, seeing Mm -hmm. my denture, I'm seeing my root canal. So the patients lose their identity and become procedures. Mm -hmm. And this is what happens. We become procedures. And if you ask a student tell me about what uh, the reason for that medication is. Well, the PDR says this is what I should give. Okay. What's the PDR reason for giving that medication or why are you doing this procedure instead of that procedure? Well, today's Tuesday and the 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 attending on Tuesday likes this procedure, but why does he like that procedure? Well, the clinician who comes in or the attending who comes in on Friday doesn't like that when we do it this way on Friday, but Why? And they don't think; they react. And we try in orofacial pain to get them back to science and thinking again. So I think part of the educational process, kind of, is anti-thinking by the senior year. And the orofacial pain question is really where you have to go and hands in your pockets, open your eyes, open your ears. Don't touch the patient until you have a diagnosis, and you have to think a case through. So for those of you out there who really enjoy detective novels, this is where you want to be.
0: Very interesting. So um would you mind explaining to to us what does then evidence-based dentistry mean? And and how does that fit in, in this development of orofacial pain as a specialty?
1: Well, evidence-based dentistry is really doesn't apply to any specific form of dentistry, it applies as a a concept in general, where evidence-based medicine is, if you just to summarize it down to three major points, it's treatment that's based on the best available scientific evidence that what it is you're about to do has been uh, proven to be effective in the literature by virtue of various studies. And I don't need to go through the types of studies, you know, uh, double-blind studies, random control trials, uh, reviews through meta-analysis, and so on. But through the literature proven by studies, it's been a, it's a technique, a diagnostic technique or treatment modality that's proven effective. And then it is based on the clinical judgment, and this is important, skill of the clinician now you may be well aware of the fact that your patient needs to have brain surgery okay the evidence says your patient needs to have surgery on the left temporal lobe for seizure disorder able to do that well no you're not going to do that your skill mean level is not at that level so you're going to refer it all right so evidence-based medicine says okay here's what the patient needs, but is it something you can do or something that has to be referred out? So again, it's based on the clinician's skill and best judgment. Here's what the patient needs. Can I do it? Do I have the skill? Is it in my best judgment that the patient should have this? And should I be the guy that does it? Or the girl. See, so No chauvinism here. Okay. And finally... And this is the thing that most of us uh, are guilty of not doing. How about the what does the patient want? because you have to include the patient in decision making so finally it 's what the patient 's preference is so evidence based medicine if you boil it down to three concepts, what does the literature say that 's the best and most effective treatment? Can you do it, or should you send it out? Are you capable of that procedure and Are there alternatives that you can present to the patient that the patient can say, I don't want this, I want that, and the patient makes the ultimate decision? All right, now now we've heard of cases where, okay, the patient demands that I do, why can't I do it if the patient wants Okay, I mean, there are some fields, let's say there are some fields in dentistry where the patient says, I want this, I read about it, and Dr. Google says I should have this procedure done, and... um, why will I not be allowed to do that? Well, okay, um it's not indicated supported by the evidence. The evidence doesn't support that procedure and in fact I can't use that procedure in my best clinical judgment. But I want it anyway, says the patient. So you have two out of three. The patient wants it, but not supported by the literature, and your clinical judgment says no. Should you do that? Well, you say to the patient, I, I really can't support that. Two out of the three items are absent in the three items that I need to use uh, a decision-making paradigm in selecting something based on evidence industry. And, uh, well, okay, I, you know what? I'll, uh, I'll sign the chart and give you permission to do it. It's okay. I'll give you permission. That's fine. I'll be okay. Just give me the chart, and I'll say it's okay to extract all of my teeth or take out all of my silver fillings and put in composites, no problem. And what do you say to that? So you can go to any extreme on these uh, concepts, but evidence-based medicine is essentially we want to do no harm, best treatment for the patient, done by the best clinician, and it's what the patient wants, and we have to give the patient choices. If plan A is going to be as effective as plan B, let the patient know about both. And pick mm-hmm. what they want to do. Yeah, yeah, like in the extreme case, okay, you have a terminally ill patient. Do you want to go on chemo for six months and live in pain for six months, or do you want to just go for three months without pain? I mean, that's an extreme case, but this is way, the way it is. Mm-hmm. You have to give the patient the choice, and a lot of us leave the patient out of it.
0: In this last few minutes that we have left, Dr. Herr, I would like to ask you last question. How do you envision the development of this field of official pain in the future?
1: Well, that's a hard question to answer unless we parallel specialties in other fields. Where would we envision neuroscience, for example, even 10 years ago? If we go back into the days of, let's say, Sherrington, back into the 1920s or so, we didn't even have the term nociception. And uh, now we have noxious nociception. We have even even, uh, terms that... Weldon Bell used back in the 1980s were so far ahead of their time that it it was scary that you would think that maybe he had some kind of crystal ball to predict the terms that he used. So, I think that in at least neuroscience, the field is expanding exponentially. If you go to a meeting, as we just came from the meeting in Boston at the International Association for the Study of Pain, or the um, AAOP meetings. Uh, or meetings of high level science and clinical uh, uh, activities as we see, you can imagine that what you're sitting and listening to were even there were science fiction maybe ten years ago, so it's hard to predict unless you're Jules Verne and you're writing science fiction novels it's hard to predict, but what as I think we're going to probably have a greater understanding of pain mechanisms. We're going to have a greater understanding of how the brain controls bodily functions and modulates pain. I think we're going to have bioengineering. I think somehow in the future, I've, I somehow envision growing new temporomandibular joints out of, who knows, <laughs> potatoes or whatever. But we'll see, we will see something that will be um, artificial, replace to some of our joints along the way. So it's really an, it's a it's a opening world of discovery and science that knows no bounds. I will tell you that I have postgraduate students in my program that uh, I I tell them at the beginning of the year when we start our program that uh, you didn't get to our program because you're not smart and you're probably a lot smarter than most of the faculty, including me. It's just that we've had time to make more mistakes. Mm-hmm. And so we're probably gonna just teach you how not to make as many mistakes as we did and give you a head start and a push out the door so that you can go ahead and make new discoveries and treat more people and do a better job than we did. So the fact is you don't know what they're gonna discover. Um, I think in the future we'll see better pain management, we'll see uh selective uh, designer drugs, we're going to see genetically uh, uh, manufactured receptors that will do selective pain management. Uh, we're going to see a lot of things. But um, ultimately, what we're looking at is taking a, borrowing a therapy, increase function, reduce pain. Mm-hmm. and that's where it's going and that's the goals and if we can increase function by better biomechanics if we can reduce pain by understanding pain mechanisms in uh, a better way producing more drugs or better drugs or better techniques for pain modulation whether it's a neurostimulator whether it's some kind of an electrical or electronic device or medication we don't know But we know it's getting better. And like I, and I'll I'll end with this comment. We tell our patient, and going back to uh, cortical control of pain, you know, higher centers controlling pain modulation, uh, and we teach coping skills. We never tell a patient, learn to live with it. We tell the patient, learn to understand your pain. And we never take away hope. We never say, there's nothing we can do for you anymore. This is the end. This is all we can do. And there's nothing else. We always tell a patient, well, We know where we are today, but we don't know where we're going to be tomorrow. And tomorrow afternoon, there may be a discovery that's going to solve your problem. So let's hold on for today because we don't know tomorrow what we'll have. I can't predict tomorrow. I wish I could. Otherwise, I would have won $1.6 billion last night.
0: (laughs) True. (laughs) And we will not be recording this podcast. I I
1: would be doing this for my private jet. But other than that, I'm just hoping that we all do better for our patients and keep our patients in mind is the number one reason why we're doing what we do.
0: Dr. Herb, thank you so much. This has been such a great pleasure. I really appreciate you taking the time and sharing your knowledge with us. Thank you.
1: Well, it was great fun talking to you. And uh, I'm sorry if I interjected a little bit of New Jersey humor here, but uh, what can I say? Thank you. Okay. Goodbye.
0: If you would like to learn more about this subject or any other topics, please don't hesitate to visit our website at www.aaop.org. It was my pleasure to share this time with you. Thank you for listening.